0: and also protects our clients as well you can learn more about upheal and the awesome work that they're doing in the world uh, by going to sellingthecouch.com/upheal and upheal is, is spelled u p and then h e a l all one word and at checkout be sure to enter the promo code couch25c o u c h C-O-U-C-H, and the number 25 to get 25% off your upheal plan for the first two months. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 316 of Selling the Couch. I hope that you're doing well and have had a good 4th of July and a good opportunity. To spend some time with family. Fourth of July here is if you are a listener in the United States. My podcast session today is all about serving incarcerated men. And my guest is Robert Field. If you are thinking about creating an online course, I know that many of us may be thinking about that right now in the midst of the pandemic and in a post pandemic world, whether it's just to diversify our income uh, beyond therapy work or Uh, just to feel like we have a bigger message to share and we want to be able to share that in a different way uh, beyond just our geographic area. If all of that sounds awesome and you've been thinking about creating an online course, I just wanted to invite you to download the free A to Z online course guide. Uh, I launched my first online course back in 2015 to a $297 first sale and through a lot of just hard work and uh, a lot of trust in colleagues to purchase the course so we've how had over 275 of our colleagues purchase the Healthcasters podcasting course and I've learned a ton about what it takes to launch, grow, and scale a podcasting course and a course in uh, in general. And uh, that guide just has a lot of helpful information to help you get started. We're also launching something called Online Course School. This is a live cohort experience, so meaning that this isn't like a digital course on courses, although eventually it will have that, but this is more of a live experience where we therapists can gather over the course of six to eight weeks. And what I will do is I will teach you everything that I know about how to launch and grow a successful online course. We'll start with your idea and how to validate your online course. We'll then work through what your lessons and modules and all of those different things will look like we will actually take time and And actually do exercises to get those down. We'll come up with your course title and your subtitle uh, in a way that your students are excited to want to purchase that course. And then we'll talk about actually how to record and market your course as well. And you'll be joined with others in community and you'll have an accountability buddy and a bunch of really awesome stuff. And uh, if any of that sounds awesome, I encourage you to download, again, the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. So we'll get right to today's session. Robert is a licensed psychological associate down in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, Robert and I connected on Twitter out of all Places. I've been following him, and well, we follow one another. And I was just so fascinated by many of the things that he posts, especially because you know, for me, I think as as an Asian Indian male person of color, right? There's just and an immigrant to this country. There's just so many nuances and so many things that continuing learning and opening up my heart to and my mind to. And uh, Robert works. Uh, with specifically with incarcerated men. And this is something that our family, uh, you know, just we've been thinking about how to sort of support and on sort of a larger level. And it's just I wanted to just understand sort of more and learn more, more than anything. So this is like less of a business conversation, but more of just a, you know, let's understand and learn and all of those different things. So yeah, I hope that you enjoy today's podcast session. So here's my conversation with Robert Fields. Hey, Robert, welcome to Selling the Couch.
1: Hey, Melvin, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) We were laughing about this, but you know, I thought you and I might be the only two therapists on Twitter, but apparently there's a a whole world out there. So it is crazy. Twitter, out of all things, is how we have connected.
1: Yeah, I've followed the podcast for a while, and I've always appreciated the content and the authenticity. I think there's been some interviews or some episodes where he's been very transparent, like in transitioning from therapy to, you know, business mode. And I've just really appreciated that. And so I've always been a fan of the podcast. So it's amazing to like link up like this and 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 have a conversation.
0: You know, I didn't realize that you had actually been listening to the podcast. It's just so, I don't know, so humbling. So I appreciate you for that.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, you you work with uh, a very interesting population. and I feel like for so many of us, like we have a story of why we go into certain niches and populations, right? For you, why incarcerated men?
1: I kind of got into it during a time where I was working in the community and uh, there was a, a big upheaval in Medicaid and there's like all these scandals with Medicaid and everything. And so I decided to go back and and work for the state government. And so my entry was into juvenile justice. And to be honest, I really, I was hesitant because in in seeing black and brown people or people that look like me in incarcerated situations, I just wasn't really sure how I I would feel about that. But once I got in there, I recognized very quickly that everyone needs services. And this is a, a place where services are definitely needed. And I think it's also helpful to have people that look like you in there helping. So my entry was there. And then also always wanted to work in a hospital setting and the adult prison system opened up a hospital for medical and mental health. And so then I transitioned over to the adult population. And and again, in being in there, you see very quickly the need for mental health services. And so I've enjoyed working um, with incarcerated individual, individuals, and um, I appreciate that they allow me to, you know, provide service for them.
0: You use the word hesitant as sort of a, a word, you know, initially, I was wondering if you could tell us to the level that you're comfortable, like, what was the hesitancy?
1: Just knowing the the involvement of the criminal justice system and, and how it's impacted communities of color, particularly Black and brown communities, and just feeling like, am I helping or hurting in being in this situation?
0: Part of the system, you're saying?
1: Right, right. Or if I would be of any value in that situation and not knowing that... What could I help with in 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 that situation? So initially it was kind of like, yeah, that's part of the system. I don't want to be a part of the system. and then realizing that there's a, a huge need for you to be a part of this situation and help within the system.
0: How did you make that mental shift? Because like I could see that being a challenge for so many people, right? Like you're one person in this massive system that may be like inefficient on multiple levels, right and unfair. Right. But how did you make that shift from saying, there's just no way I can make a meaningful impact and I don't want to do that, to like, hey, like, even though I am one person, there is this need?
1: Yeah. Once I got in there, one, you get to see that the kids were still kids. These were juveniles, right? And they had been, these are adjudicated juveniles. So they, it's basically, they had been quote unquote convicted, although conviction isn't a term used in juvenile justice, but it's along that line. And so, you still get to see that these are kids and they have all the needs and developmental needs and all the quirks and all the personalities, everything that, that kids have. And they made a, a bad decision or maybe several bad decisions, but in that environment, the situation's over with and they're still kids. And then you also, I was also able to see the juvenile justice system, I think more broadly, because then I was able to interact with the courts. I was able to interact with court counselors. I was able to interact with families. And so even though they're in this restrictive environment, it still came down to community. It's, this was still a community issue. It was still about working with families. It was still about working with mental illness. It was still working about policy. And so it, it was you could see it that it wasn't just about people being locked up. That there's this whole system and just all these different places that you can kind of make an impact even if it's just being present, which I'm very I'm very big on. It's just sometimes it's just being present makes a huge difference. So once I was able to start working there and see that, it just it just changed things. You can see where, you know, this is the kind of work that I do. And the community is this, in this juvenile justice situation, it's just a a microcosm of the community. And it was the same thing in adult corrections as well.
0: It requires like such humility to like realize that, you know, and realize like one, like you can make these changes and even to be able to take that step back and say, this is like a larger sort of societal or community sort of level thing that needs to be addressed and I don't know, that other that where you shared about like, these are kids that made like one or a series of decisions, right? But they're still kids, right? And just that, I mean, like, was that hard, like to see them beyond the criminal act, if that makes sense? Like to see them as, you know, still kids, right? That made a bad decision?
1: It really wasn't because I don't know. I think for me, I have been somebody that was, that had uh, troubles growing up at, at certain times. And have had contact with the Jew without justice system. And I, I've had friends in the same situation. And so For me, part of being in the mental health field, I've always just been community oriented and I just, I see people as people regardless of their situation. And so for, and being in in the juvenile justice system, some kids had, you know, very serious offenses, but you could put that to the side and deal with what was actually going on with the person. Otherwise, you're doing them a disservice because they're going to run into a lot of people who are going to just focus on what they did. And- paint a picture of who that person is and miss the opportunities to to provide assistance because they're, they're caught up in what the person actually did. And it's the same thing in adult corrections too. If I focus on the crime to the point where I've missed the person, then I'm, I'm doing them a disservice. Sometimes the crime does play a part into the treatment and into safety and security. Absolutely. But you also have to remember that these are people. They're a person like me. I could have made a decision that had, would have me in the same situation. And it's what I tell people in uh, who don't work in this in this part of the field is, you know, we all have made decisions that running a red light or, you know, something that you could have made a different decision and been behind bars. And it doesn't make you necessarily a bad person. Maybe you just made a, a very poor decision. And not only that, the majority of people who are incarcerated are coming back to the community. So there's still people, there are people that were in the community, there are people that they were incarcerated and they come back to being people in the community. So their humanity to me never changes. It's just where where they are in life and you can say that really with any of us.
0: Yeah, such a beautiful way of putting it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask you like how do you think, you know, you said you had some interactions with the juvenile justice system? I feel like that what creates like such a different level of empathy and connection and how do you think that experience has sort of informed the work that you do now
1: I think that it, it's just knowing that it it can happen to anybody it doesn't have to define you I think that for me it wasn't to the level of of having to be you know put in restrict in a restrictive situation thankfully but it was enough to to kind of disrupt things in, in the home right? And it could have gotten worse. And so thankfully nothing, it didn't. And it's just things that just didn't, you know, just didn't get out of hand or whatever. But I think that just recognizing that these things can happen to anybody, it really comes down to different decisions sometimes. And so, yeah, I think just, just recognizing that just helps me to know. And I think it also helps me in building rapport with people, not that I disclose this, but just also recognize I'll hear certain things and I'm like, yep, I know exactly where, you know, that comes from or or how that could have happened um, like that. I'm familiar with that. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It gives you sort of a different lens, I think, by which to look at things. So you were working with the juvenile population and then you made the transition working with primarily adult men, sounds like. That's correct. I imagine like folks that are listening, you know, I, I think many folks that are listening have sort of a social justice bent and wanting to sort of work with this population in some capacity. So I was wondering if we could dive a little bit deeper and maybe like sort of three pieces of advice or three like tips that you would give if, you know, if a clinician is listening and wanting to work with incarcerated men, for example.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the big things is is recognizing that they have not lost being human. Right. You, you still have to treat people as as human beings because they are we are we're and we're all connected in this. And so you have to I think you have to be careful not to lose people's humanity in this in these settings, people are often referred to by numbers or last names. And sometimes we refer to people by last name. And I'm, I'm particular about calling people Mr. I'm particular about using people's names and how they want to be identified because it's important. Because again, if, if this were you on that side, would you want that same level of treatment? So I think that's one of the big things is, is just remembering that they're a person just like you are.
0: So you'll always ask for how they want to be referred to us?
1: Um, baseline, Mr., such and such. Mr. Such and Such, or however they want to be addressed. Sometimes it's it's last names because that's just, you know, it's a culture. One of the things about it is it's a culture, like I said, it's a microcosm of society within the system. And so it's still a, a lot of cultural aspects to it as well. So it's just like how someone wants to be addressed might play into that as well. So, but my baseline is always, you know, being respectful to people. Being consistent is huge. Being consistent and being fair. Sometimes you have to make decisions that people don't necessarily like, but they respect the fact that you are consistent about it and that you're fair. One of the things that some of the men will bring up is that when people are strict one day and lax the next day, and then strict the next day, you don't know where you stand with that that particular staff member. And so I try to I make it a point to be consistent about things. And so even when someone doesn't like what I say or, or something that needs to happen, we always have the conversation like, but this is not out of the ordinary. This is we kind of I'm, I'm trying not to use too much slang because this is.
0: <laughs> it's all good.
1: Because <laughs> when we're in there, it's like, you know, this is how we get down. I never shot you one. I, I'm always straight with you. And so, and people respect that. And it works both ways. It's, it's like a dance, I think. And and as long as we're respecting the rules of the dance, then everyone kind of can, can make it through the day. And so being consistent with people, if you're going to be strict and completely by the book, then be that. If you're going to be something else, then be that but don't go back and forth. And I think another thing is having very good boundaries. This is probably one of the, the biggest points in, in working in that environment is that you have to have really good boundaries. It's, I've seen where sometimes as clinicians and as, as helpers, you know, you want to do, you hear these stories and you want to do so much, but you also have to be mindful that is you can't do but so much in there. You can only do but so much in that environment. Before you run the risk of what we call undue familiarity, where you, you're kind of doing it to the point where it's jeopardizing the safety and security and also the treatment for the person, because then the lines start getting blurred. So you have to have very good boundaries and you also have to have good boundaries in terms of making sure you just you're focusing on providing the help that that you're there to do and not overstepping.
0: Does those boundaries, do they kind of establish like just with experience or is that something that is sort of talked about and and sort of set like at a, you know, like at a treatment team level? Might be a silly question, but.
1: Yeah, no, no. It's a great, a great question. It is throughout your onboarding and your training. So both on the prison level, but also in a treatment level in terms of like having good boundaries with people. So it's always, it's always a, it's always a part of your job to have very good boundaries with, with who you're working with.
0: So you said boundaries and just sort of seeing them as humans, right. And not forgetting their humanity, any sort of other sort of tips.
1: And also being consistent with people, you know, it's just being consistent is, is huge in this environment. You want to be who you say you are when you're interacting with folks, because respect is very big. In, this, in these situations. And so being consistent with who you are lets everyone know how we are to interact with each other and what to kind of expect. And then also, I would also say, is that there's still mental illness to treat. There's still community issues to address. Just like with, say, with like um, George Floyd situation or Ferguson, these they're very aware of what's going on. They're very involved in, in what's going on in the community. So on, either on a local level or a national level or international level, they know what's going on. And sometimes you're having to help process some of these things. So you're having a situation like with George Floyd where they could relate to, and then but they're also in a situation where there's not much that they can do about it, or they might know someone who's in a similar situation. And so you're having to process that as well. And you're also having to deal with people who have you know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So there, there are also a lot of uh, mental illness that's in there as well. Some of it is before they got incarcerated. And so it just carries through and it may look different in a, in a prison environment. But it, I, I think sometimes we, we just have to be mindful not to lose sight of that as well. And there's actual treatment that can happen inside prisons.
0: Yeah. So what we're saying is like, I guess, simultaneously holding their stories and how they're processing events and circumstances while also being aware of their own mental health history and particularly like nuances right there. It could manifest differently, like once they're incarcerated versus when they're not.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Man, this is, there's just so many nuances. I I don't know, I keep saying this, but like I just feel like this requires such a different level of empathy and compassion, you know, and self-awareness and boundaries. Yeah. So many levels. Robert, for you, like, maybe this is the last question, but how do you, like, keep that spirit, you know, going? Because this is not easy, a population to work with, right? And then systemically, there could be a lot of factors, right, coming. How do you sort of maintain that optimism,
1: it can be very challenging at times. It, it absolutely can. There's There are a lot of factors and a lot of things that kind of weigh in in working in, in this environment. I think it's the day to day interactions with people. Sometimes when I'm working with an individual. So for me, part of what I do is I work in the hospital and I work with people who are, who are also dealing with medical issues. And so I take a little extra time in talking with them. And sometimes it's just them saying, thank you for taking more time speaking with me about my concerns, working with me on X, Y, and Z. Sometimes it is just seeing that someone who might have usually reacted in an aggressive way choose to not and kind of use some of the skills that they've been working on, whether you help with that or they've been learning it and you just kind of came in while they've been learning that. But I think it's the day-to-day kind of changes that you'll see. Um, And then I've been there for a while. And so some people I've seen across time and seen some of the changes across time. It can be, I think for some people, it can be disheartening if they don't see something immediate or these big, you know, big shifts in either people's behavior or in the systems. But it's really gradual and you really have to see it like the day to day stuff. Someone just being someone just having a good day that particular day means something. So. Whenever you have a whenever I have a chance to to help somebody kind of get through that day, I think that that makes a difference. And then, you know, across time, you see some some bigger changes and you know that, you know, that you had a part in that or that you're happy that something is happening on a larger scale.
0: Yeah. So well said. I mean, the ability to make what may feel like small changes, but it could be like big in someone else's world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Robert, where I'm, I'm super grateful for you. Again, grateful that we've been able to connect. And for folks that want to learn more and connect with you, uh, where can we find you?
1: Sure. You can reach me on Twitter at uh, Robert Fields LPA. Also, same on Instagram. And just you'll see a variety of things that I post about. It all kind of comes back to mental health and working with people and, and trying to have an impact.
0: That's awesome. I'm looking at some of the stuff that you've been posting. It's so awesome. Thank you. Such a variety of stuff. It's so good. Twitter is such a treasure trove of like awesome resources and awesome people. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. It really is. It's cool to kind of bump into people and learn kind of what they're doing and get involved where you can. And you know, so it's it's been cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Robert. Uh, super grateful for you, and uh, have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great linking up with you and talking. And I hope you have a great day as well.
0: You too. Bye. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert. And especially uh, if you have been interested or thinking about niching into uh, incarcerated men, I hope that today's podcast session has just been really helpful for you. I was reflecting a lot on this conversation. And, you know, the thing I just kept sort of the new insight or the new realization I had is how easy it is, right? For any of us could be in just the wrong place at the wrong time and something could happen and we end up being involved with law enforcement, and even possibly incarcerated, and wanting, you know, if if I were in that situation, I would want someone to still see my humanity, and just a reminder. You know, my conversation with Robert was just a good and a, a sweet reminder of that. Robert is super active on Twitter. So I encourage you definitely to connect with him there. He actually told me there's like therapists of Twitter and academic Twitter. And there's like all these little areas of Twitter, which I am still so new to Twitter. So I didn't even know existed. And it's just cool. Twitter is definitely an interesting medium, one that I would have never been on but, you know, I think now, especially going private, it's not all the way. I think the deal is not quite finalized, but I think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities there. I think if you're a writer, if you want to sort of connect with other thought leaders, I think Twitter is a very interesting platform to be on. Have a great rest of your day and uh, I will see you next time. Bye. I wanted to invite you to download the free online course guide. If you are thinking about launching an online course and just want some things that have been helpful. Uh, For me and some of the tough lessons that I learned along the way, you can again, download that over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. And as I mentioned, right at the beginning, we're actually starting a live cohort called online course school. This is a great opportunity to join with other therapists to validate and launch and record your online course. The best way to find out about this and to keep updated when the core launches is to download again the online course guide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash online course guide. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com.